Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Brett Favre died. Well, not really. On our way out to South Dakota, we stopped in Austin, Minnesota. And done getting gas, about to pull out, there was a hearse with the flashing lights and everybody on with their lights behind. So a funeral. And I told my daughters, I said, oh, yeah, this is Brett Favre's funeral. You know, Brett Favre used to play for Minnesota. And and um, so they were a little confused. They were like, when did this happen? <laughs> They're not big, big sports fans, but each of them wore a Brett Favre jersey at one time. And I said, no, um, he did not die, but somebody did. So we need to wait for this funeral to pass. Um so Brett Favre, I think, is okay, and wishing him well if he is not. Um, I've been out biking kind of like crazy lately. I'll talk about that. But one of the things I do when I bike is I like to bike through cemeteries if they have you know paved ways to do that. <laughs> Some of the country cemeteries, no, that's not possible. It wouldn't be respectful to do that. Uh, but if there's actual, you know, roads to go through. And in the community I live in, there are three substantial cemeteries. And there's the original cemetery in town, which continues to um, have new burials. Actually, all, all of the cemeteries, I believe, have new burials. But this one has a number of gravestones from the mid-1800s. Um, so it's really the settlers. And actually, the town I live in, there was a military fort here from 1828 to 1845 active. And outside of town, there's another small military cemetery. And that actually has at least one, could be two, soldiers who had fought in the Revolutionary War. Wow. So anyway, I'm frustrated with cemeteries and the whole funeral process. It seems that as I get older, the less I'm tolerant <laughs> of these of these things, these institutions. Um, and not that I'm disrespectful of a, of a cemetery, not at all, but I just don't see it as making sense. Um, I, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna get in, into that, but um, when I go through a cemetery, it's really for the historical aspect to look at some of the designs on the gravestones, you know, like from the mid 1800s and the, the commentary um, that's put on them. And, and, you know, now they have the stones where they actually have like color photos um, under some kind of, um, you know, clear resin that so you can see you know, an image of the person. I think that's a little creepy. I don't know. I mean, even if it's just, there's, there's one, um, gravestone I go past when I bike and it's facing out toward the road. It was a girl, I believe like 20 years old or, or something like that. And she has her picture. Um, so it's, it, I personally wouldn't want that. And, you know, over time, again, these are one of those things everybody thinks perpetual care and all of that with a cemetery. But the reality is that doesn't happen. I mean, what do you see with the old gravestones in any cemetery? I mean, I was out in Boston, um, you know, in, in the famous cemeteries and the gravestones are are all severely weathered. Um, 
so you, you can't, unless you're etching, you can't really make out what's on it. They're tilted or they've cracked because of the freezing and thawing and, and you know, or else they've been vandalized. But I'm saying just under normal wear and tear um, of, of weather and environment, they only last so long. And virtually all stones start to, to tilt, you know, as they as the ground settles and stuff like that. And so, you know, why, why do we do these things? Um, I thought about that when I was in Deadwood, South Dakota, and went to the Mount Moriah Cemetery where Wild Bill Hickok um, is and others. And, you know, it's a novelty of history. It really is. They charge you $2 to get in. <laughs> And, um, yeah, so you're charged to go into a cemetery. Interesting. But it it does have a very neat historical sense to it. Very steep. I think I talked about that before. Um, Calamity Jane is there. Um, so I think it, it shows the an insight into history, and especially if you know the stories of some of these people. But let's face it, in most cemeteries, you have no idea. And the families have relocated. They moved away, and just a lot of these stones get forgotten. This whole thought of perpetual care, you know, that you're paying for perpetual care, that your gravestone um, will be taken care of forever. Well, no, you know, and we, we, we just know that it's not practical. It's not really going to happen. Um, so I was, I was in college when my grandfather died. Uh, he had a sudden heart attack. He was out deer hunting, what he loved to do. Very active up until, you know, the moment he died. He he was out boating in summers and, you know, with his wife, my, my grandmother, who died, I think only two weeks after that. Really probably of a broken heart. Um, but yeah, my grandfather building things, I shared a story once of how um, my parents, when I was in high school, went to Europe for maybe five, six weeks, and it was just me and my brother, and my brother bolted. Uh, I don't know where he went. Checked in a few times, but it was basically me. It was kind of like um, risky business, (laughs) and it worked out pretty well. But I spent a lot of my days going up to my my grandfathers and building, um, doubling the size of his garage from a one stall to a two stall garage. So we kind of did that. That was just a great bonding experience. I don't know what I did for work that summer. I worked all of my summers. Maybe as I had more of a schedule that was toward the nights or something like that. I think, I think I did actually work mostly nights that summer, but anyway, my, I'm an adult, you know, and my grandfather, passes away of this this heart attack. And looking back now, there are some things about that that really <laughs> the they're really crazy to think about. One is that the mortician, you know, we were all gathered around the the grandkids and um, you know, the immediate family, but and the mortician said, you can write a note to you know, your grandfather, and we'll place it in his interior suit pocket, and that will be with him forever. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's a nice sentiment, and also completely insane, right? (laughs) I mean, let's just think about how nuts that is. Okay, and and I guess from my perspective, like, when I do pass, and I've been very open about this, I just don't want any type of ceremony, um, you know, a, a cremation. So looking back now, you know, the mortician is saying, I can put this note in your grandfather's pocket. And thinking what, what I should have wrote on the note is, hey, grandfather, if you're able to read this, you're in big trouble because <laughs> you are sealed in a weather-resistant casket, which is also sealed within a weather-resistant vault. So instead of just putting a note in the pocket, I need a note. I need um, probably like a utility knife and a set of magician's keys available to him to give him a fighting chance, you know. But it's just 
insane that type of stuff to me now. I'm just so pragmatic, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and this whole thing too of, of you know, the sealed casket. And I remember the mortician saying, with this specific type of casket and seal and the whole, you know, we could um, actually, if the body was exhumed in 10 years, with just a little bit of work, you could actually do another presentation of the body, another showing. And I'm thinking, yikes, like how insane is that? And what is the goal? I mean, how long do we want to preserve our bodies in that type of state, you know, in that Lenin type of perpetuality? But I, I don't know. Um, and of course, you know, in the, in the moment, people are very emotional. And a lot of that just seems to be standard practice and makes sense. But when you step back and think about it, I mean, I'm just putting myself in that role. I mean, um, I, I don't want any of that. <laughs> I don't. So I go through these cemeteries, you know, and I feel I feel bad for these these people, um, you know, where the stones are all weathered and, and nobody's tending to them and they've fallen over and stuff like that. Because at the time that they passed or the time that their families invested in these things, it was probably a pretty considerable amount of money for what they were making, you know, or had available. But, you know, they they never, of course, thought that that was going to happen. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, it's sad, but there's also, I think there's also this realism in it that um, to try to outsmart mother nature and to try to achieve this perpetual memory and, and all of these monuments and stuff just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. So anyway, Brett Favre is still okay. Still okay. Still loved in Green Bay, probably loved in Austin, Minnesota also. It's been a long time since I actually saw a funeral with a hearse, um, a, a funeral procession. There was that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer yelled, hey, you got your lights on. And Jerry's like, that's a funeral procession. So, and how everybody had their lights on too. Like it would take, I, I think lights are what, they're, they're automatically on, but not all of the cars, but like every car had its lights on. So just, wow. I, uh, I biked 140 miles this week in seven the past seven days, 140 miles. So I'm kind of back into my groove. You know, the first time out biking, um, really hit up with some hard muscle cramps, the quads, hamstrings, like uh, body wasn't used to that, probably wasn't properly hydrated for it. It was pretty warm and humid. Um, and then the second time, out was better and today it was 90 and humid so the heat index i think was like 94 96 uh so the the first like 15 miles was a little bit rough i, I did i think 53 miles today um and but after that like I, I i was great like it felt great so i'm definitely ready now to do a longer trek which for me is like that 72 to 75, maybe 80 mile range. Um, I've got a couple of those mapped out, but I do need it to get back down maybe closer to 80 and with some normal humidity. Um, but things things went really well today. I had some older, although it hadn't ex, it had not expired. It was some stacker and some some B vitamin, you know, it kind of like a five hour energy. I also have those, but I was trying to get, use up these older ones, which hadn't expired of these stackers and stuff. And I was, they were really like, you drink them and you could instantly feel that in your stomach, just this kind of like fist in your gut. So I tossed those things stuck with the five hour energy. Those have been, those have been fine, but I always take out the, um, take out a Ziploc bag and put in, some goldfish of um, the cracker goldfish, the whole wheat. And then I pour in some Swedish fish, the candy, the jelly type candy. And then have a container of beef jerky and 
five-hour energy and a sack of nuts, um, assorted nuts. And, you know, there's a rationale for all of that. So I can quickly get carbs out of the crackers. The um, five-hour energy, you know, is given a jolt of B vitamins. It takes a while to digest the Swedish fish because it is, you know, more of that um, gummy, chewy type candy versus like if you ate a bag of Skittles, like boom, be flying for like 15 minutes crazy and then you'd crash. Um, and I read that in a couple of biking forums, like the bike, bikers were saying, Swedish fish, Swedish fish. And I, I've done that for a couple of years, Work, works great. Um, and then the beef jerky, I don't do a whole bunch of it, but I do some of it. And of course that, that's protein that brings in sodium. Um, I think it helps with the whole electrolytes. Yeah, biking has been awesome. Saw many deer, which is unusual for this time of year. There aren't, it's typically, you know, um, typically a lot of birds, but I mean, and snakes. Like, I, I haven't seen a snake yet. Usually you see snakes sunning themselves out on the road. Haven't seen snakes. But have seen a lot of deer, and today saw several turkeys and little baby turkeys. So turkeys hanging all around. Um, so yeah, uh, cool stuff, feeling great. And I was out, uh, I ran four nights this week also. So really getting back into the state of, of, of fitness. Um, it was, it was 2014 when I biked probably, um, you know, every other day and combined that with some pretty serious weightlifting and it was in great shape. Um, so I'm trying to get back and, and also bench pressed, uh, when I got back. Um, so yeah, poured five gallons of water on my, uh, bushes and shrubs today also. So was hauling that around, what, eight pounds per gallon. So 40 pounds. So getting a little bit of work out there. So the other day, entire family, all four of us, wife and I, and my daughters, our daughters, um, we cleaned the garage. So it was last summer when our garage was pretty much occupied by the construction crew because we had the bathroom overhaul, completely gutted and rebuilt our main bathroom. And then in spring, we had the second bathroom, the same thing done, and the garage was, was taken up for all of the equipment to cut the porcelain tiles and all of that. So all of this fine dust, um, all of this fine porcelain dust had kind of settled on everything. So we took everything out and washed stuff off, wiped everything down, and also went through um, like all of the kids' toys and stuff like that and condensed that down by, got rid of like a third um, made sure all of the basketballs, footballs, things like that were, were pumped up. Um, but yeah, took the wet dry vac, sucked everything, you know, up in the corners and the spider webs and all of that stuff. So the garage is looking absolutely great. And that's a project I wanted to do for a while. So everyone, my seven year old, her, her job was to wash off all of the toys. So she had a big bucket, um, so making sure, yeah, all of the dust was off of all of those. My older daughter was kind of the go-between and moving some stuff. And, um, you know, my, my wife was moving and, and cleaning off some of the stuff. And I was, you know, moving some of the bigger things and really getting in there with the wet-dry vac into the corners and getting up on the ladder and getting up above and wiping off the rails for the garage door and, and all of that. But um, so there was... There was a lot of stuff like it, you couldn't notice, you didn't notice until you actually started to do this, just how much of that um, powder had, had settled in there. So I feel really great because I worked on that garage floor and got that all set and the garage is just in really, really good shape now. <laughs> and when it was all done, you know, here's the benefit too. I have a leaf blower now, you know, a gas bar leaf blower. So once we had things cleared out, I could take the leaf blower and just go all around the garage into the corners and everything and and kick up the, the dust or leaves that had worked in 
um, behind stuff and, and all of that stuff out into the driveway and sweep it up and put it in the garbage can. Worked great. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, we are talking, today's show title is In Harm's Way. My ire with intentional bad decision makers. And it, this really gets started with this Thailand rescue of the kids in the cave with their, what, 25 year old coach. Um, this doesn't sit well with me. And I've gone into discussion threads and Almost all of the comments are, we're praying for them. You know, we want, we wish them well, and here's not the time to judge and all that. Okay, I, I get that. And of course, like I want them to get out safe, and it seems like that's that's happening. Um, but this really doesn't sit well with me. And there are a few other things that have happened recently where people have made what I would say is just intentional. They, they've been informed of the consequences and warn not to do these things and, and just have gone ahead and have done them. And in doing these things, like the 25 year old coach or assistant coach who apparently used to be a monk, um, who takes these kids down into this, this cave, um, you know, it, all of these things are putting so many people at harm in harm's way. And we know in the rescue, one person, died, one of the Thai Navy SEALs, but you put so many people at harm's way and you're occupying resources then, um, and granted, you know, there should be attempts um, to to save people, you know, even if they've gotten themselves into these situations, you know, I'm not saying that we, you know, you you have some kind of decision-making process, well, it's like, well, you know, (laughs) You knowingly went in there, so we're not going to save you. That's not that's not the way we we work as humans. But, um, but the fact is, you you then remove those resources from being available to other people, and you know the the fact is, this isn't even a money thing. This isn't saying, well, this rescue has a financial cost when it's all done, like this Thai rescue, let's say, of like fifteen million dollars of how many people it occupied over how many days and whatever. I mean, let's just say something like that. Well, we, I mean, society and money spent on crazy frivolous stuff all the time. I mean, a basketball player's contract for $140 million or something or whatever. So, you know, it's not a money thing. I don't have an issue with the money part of this. But when you put other people at risk because you have made an informed, then intentional bad decision. So let's talk about this Thai rescue. Um, so obviously, what is it? Twelve boys in the coach, or thirteen boys in the coach, are are trapped. So there, this whole thing starts because it's a ritual. Okay, it's a ritual for the coach to get the players down into this cave, um, which even under the best circumstances is very difficult and narrow and hard to navigate. I was, I went through wind cave in South Dakota near hot springs, um, just a few weeks ago when we were on vacation and you know, that's with a guide with the park service and all of that. Um, 
and that's designed, you know, for basically the tourist to go through. They have steps and stuff like that. Uh, but I mean, there there are points where you need to get yourself narrow <laughs> and duck down and things like that to get through. I mean, you don't have to climb through anything, but um, I'm just thinking this is so crazy that they the coach took them down there. Basically, this was a rite of passage, okay? It was a rite of passage that you had to keep going into the cave. This is before the rains really, you know, hit and forced them to go further into the cave to, to the area um, where they were found, but they were going to go in and, and etch their names on the wall of this cave, and this was this rite of passage. And... Granted, I think that rites of passage are very important, especially for young men. Um, so I, I think, you know, or spending some time going in into the cave or at least having some ceremony, some recognition in, in this cave um, is, is okay, you know. But here's the deal. A large warning sign was at the cave's entrance. And, and I saw some images of this, and then I, it seems like it's getting scrubbed from the internet because the the sentiment toward the coach is very positive. People are saying, well, he was a monk and he had the best interests of the kids. And the families, it seems, of these kids, they're, they're not out to get the coach. They're, they're If anything, they're validating him of, you know, that he was a great leader in, in this chaotic situation. So, you know, um, which maybe to some extent he was once the rains came in, but these kids never should have been placed in this set of circumstances because this warning sign, and he, he lives there and the kids live there. They know better than this. It's monsoon season. And it's saying, you know, the risk of entering this cave that these waters can, can, you know, rapidly, um, fill up the cave. Your, your life is, is in, substantial risk and um and yet like they they just go on like you obviously know that it's monsoon you're you're not uninformed you're not stupid doing this but what it is is it's this rite of passage and you're gonna you you just ignore that and you go in and i'm like oh so this irritates me this irritates me this coach um I mean, he, he, he's responsible, I mean, for the death of one person involved in this rescue, one of what the Thai Navy SEALs. And um, it's, it's just irresponsible and the risk that he has placed everybody else at for the stupid, stupid decision all tied around this ritual. But the fact that you forego the warning sign. Okay. And then the parents validating, you know, that it's more important seemingly to them that their, their kids had the opportunity for this, this ritual. And then when this did hit that this coach managed to get them to safety, that doesn't, um, you know, that, that doesn't excuse this, you know, in fact, he was a monk. I mean, they're, they're trying to build this pedigree of, of this excuse for this guy. And it's like, no, you did. It's the stupid, stupid thing. Um, and yes, now the focus has to be on rescuing, but when you get out, I mean, I think the guy should be tried, you know, that this as, as a criminal, um, uh, offense, I mean, because you would have to use discretion and judgment based upon where that sign was, you're, you're the acting parent of these kids and, you know, you put them knowingly into a very, very dangerous situation, which I mean, by all means, the the fact that they were even found alive was a miracle. Um, but you don't celebrate this guy. You don't do that. I mean, this again, this is just stupid. So, so oh, okay. So a large warning sign at the cave's entrance raises the risk of entering so so close to the monsoon season. You know, so the signs are. But for many in Thailand. Ekapol, who left his life in the monkhood three years ago, joining the Wild Boars, so it's a football team, as an assistant coach soon after, is an almost divine force sent to protect the boys as they go through this ordeal. 
A widely shared cartoon drawing of Ekapole shows him sitting cross-legged as a monk does in meditation with 12 little wild boars in his arms. That's insane! My God, that's crazy! So I was looking up Thailand, doing a little research. So we have a population where we have a national IQ of 91. So U.S., you know, we're closer to 100, what, Japan, 108. Um, 91. And, and, and actually, through the Thailand government, a study coming out in the last year that there is a rapid decline um, in the IQ of youth that's concerning. This is, a, this is from the Thai government. So we also know that, you know, once you get below 85 for an IQ, as a society, it's very hard to govern and make good decisions. Very hard to have that level of sophistication that we have like in modern society. And that, you know, I, IQ takes, um, you know, hundreds and thousands of years to raise and can seemingly, you know, you can shave off those IQ points and generate, you know, just a few generations. But so we're dealing also with people. Um, I don't want to make this where I'm the PhD, I'm the safety doc, and I'm smarter than whoever because I, I don't want it to come off that way. But you're having people who are, are seeing this coach as this idol, as this, this hero. And I'm like, I just don't, I just don't understand it. Um, I just don't understand it because again, he made the decision after being informed, he made the decision, which ultimately compromised the safety of the 12 boys and his own safety and then led to compromising the safety of the people involved in the rescue. So the first, you know, the first four, we know that they've been getting some bo- some boys out of the cave and and um, just how complicated this is and, and this, this whole process. So, you know, it, one of the things that will come out of this um, is this will serve as a model for future rescues by people hopefully um, are not in the certain set of circumstance because of knowingly putting themselves there. But um, so, I mean, there'll be lessons learned from this, but it is, it is like the experienced cave divers, like the very best have, have said this cave is almost impossible to navigate. And you think about them, these, these people are putting their life on a line. I mean, they have families and they are, again, putting themselves at risk because Ekapole decided this ritual was more important than heeding the warning. And yet the families are saying to the, to the coach, don't worry about it when you come out. You know, like, it's, we're not mad at you. I'm thinking, and of course, like, you got to be careful on the information that's shared back and forth. But even the stuff that the kids were sending out you know, the tone kind of changed on that. Like they were saying what the kid, the kids were saying, we, we don't want to go to, we want some time off of school or we want like fried chicken and, you know, we want to have this like party and this other stuff. And I'm thinking, do you not realize like you still are kids? Like, and it came out later and this might've been, this might've been because people are realizing who were involved in the rescue and all of that of, um, you know, these kids should really be very thankful of their rescuers that came out in later notes. It wasn't there in the first stuff though. It was really centric of, Hey, when we get out of here, we're going to, you know, do all of these great things and eat all these wonderful foods and whatever. And it's like, you obviously you don't want to freak the kids out and, and all of that with how dire the situation really is and how complicated, but I would have just expected more appreciation um, in these notes versus kind of get us out as fast as we can so we can resume, you know, these, our lives, which mainly seem to focus on um, eating. (laughs) I don't know. It was, it just, uh, it doesn't set well, doesn't set well with me. Um, 
so yeah, who knows where where stuff where this stuff will go. But I'm I'm not a fan of uh, of this coach, and you know I I I think it was a horrible decision. Hopefully, this will have an okay you know outcome, an outcome where the everybody will be rescued. We won't have additional deaths or injuries. Um, but no, we don't celebrate this guy. That's that's insane. That's that's a, geez, it's crazy, right? Am I the only one thinking this? And you know, I'm not posting anything to social media. And I and I have I haven't seen anybody post anything negative because I think people get in and realize that the moment they do that, they're going to be targeted and doxed and things like that um, and slammed because it's all about no, we've got to put all of that aside and you know we we just have to pray. And, and all of those types of things. Yes, I, I get that. Um, but again, we cannot excuse that this this was a horrible decision after being informed. And there's, there needs to be consequences from this. So, all right. You can kind of tell where I'm at today, right? Second, the second issue Second event, a woman climbed the base of the Statue of Liberty on the 4th of July to protest migrant family separations. So this was an article, came out of CNN, um, but in New York, Liberty Island was being evacuated because a person trying to climb the Statue of Liberty, uh, um, Liberty, how the hell is this worded? A person trying to climb the Statue of Liberty. I, I, I don't know. This is crazy, crazy journalism. All right. So anyway, someone was trying to climb the Statue of Liberty. The island was evacuated by the Park Police, NYPD. And, you know, they're on scene. Park Service is there. So basically 16 officers with the New York City Police Department's Emergency Service Unit. It's a, it's a team trained to perform some of the most dangerous rescues in the city. They took part in the rescue apprehension effort because, you know, she's, she, you know, you're, you're not supposed to climb the Statue of Liberty. You're, and she's doing this in defiance um, of, of the law and, and to get this message out there. So they're going to rescue her and then also put handcuffs on her and take her to jail. But Officer Brian Glacken said in a news conference Wednesday evening, at first she wasn't friendly with us, but we took the time to get a rapport with her. So that took a while, said Glacken. She just kind of mentioned the kids in Texas. I guess the whole debate that's going on about that. In the beginning, she threatened to push us off. Pushed the ladder off, but we stayed with her, Glacken added. Finally, officers with ropes and climbing gear reached her. At first, she was being a little combative. Then she was willing to cooperate with us. She actually apologized to us for having to go up and get her, Glacken told reporters. Officers put a harness and ropes on her to bring her down, and she crossed to the other side of the statue with the officers where a ladder was propped up on the base of the statue. So this was a complicated rescue because they're saying, you know, the 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 Statue of Liberty is is not uniform. I mean, it's got all different curves and waves and angles and things like that. So you're trying to to do this rescue where you you know, you're kind of repelling, but where do you put ropes and all of that? It's not like you have a ladder truck in the fire department you can just pull up and, you know, extend the ladder out and go get her. So she's she's doing this, puts her own life at risk, but then really she's putting the lives of these this uh, rescue unit, the the members of that who are participating, who are climbing up to get her, putting them at risk. Um, again, occupying resources, and this whole again just stupid, stupid, stupid. So. You know, this is the thing. If you want to make a protest, if, if you, you know, getting out a message, 
then figure out how to do that in a way that you're not going to put other people in harm's way. Okay, that's, I mean, oh, this just, this, you know, bring bring your sign, your banner, whatever, and hold it up or, or you know, what whatever is not going to put you and then others at risk. So, yeah, I, I just shake my head at that because, again, another person that doesn't think of the consequence that then gets applied to other people who are coming in to preserve this person's life and actually their ability to communicate First Amendment um, rights. So, it again, it really frustrates me because this one seemed like it had a really was portrayed in a really positive tone by the media. Um, you know, she's just doing this to bring awareness and, and then, you know, it, it the, the quickly kind of got scrubbed from the news and, and even the way that the officer talked about it, you know, really kind of downplayed it. But the reality is, you know, I read a number of articles on this and, and it talked about just how complicated this was and the risk with this, especially when you have somebody that's combative, you know, that they could jeopardize one or more of the rescuers and, you know, do the rescuers, they could get harmed, could get killed, who knows. But um, again, to the point of somebody making an informed decision to put themselves at risk, okay, to, to go against you know, the <laughs> go go against the um, post-it warnings, you know, and uh, in doing that, bring others into the mix and you have all of these extensions with the other people of, you know, spouses and kids and parents and just everybody that is concerned about their lives. And then if something happens to them, you remove them from now being available to help other people because you've made, I don't know if it's a selfish decision. I don't, I don't know what it is, but this was, again, it was stupid to do this. And, um, you have every right again to, to do a, you know, protest and, in to, you know, communicate your disagreement with what is going on, but not to do it in a manner where you're putting others in harm's way. So I don't know whatever happened to her. I mean, there was really no follow-up. This, this just vanished. And then on July 7th from the Charlotte Observers, or Observer, maybe there's more than one Observer, but anyway, the, the newspaper, Charlotte Observer. Red, no swimming flags were posted on Saturday to, or, or posted Saturday in Kill Devil Hills for dangerous rough surf caused by a storm off the North Carolina coast, according to the town. Wow, you have a place called Kill Devil Hills? That just sounds dangerous on its own. A 62-year-old man swimming in the rough surf disappeared at 12.15 p.m., authorities say. He was seen in the water near 4th Street minutes later, but couldn't get back to shore, according to Dare County Emergency Services and the Ocean Rescue Division of the Kill Devil Hills Fire Department. Takes up a lot of space on the side of a fire truck, right? The Kill Devil's Hills Fire Department. It's a lot of gold leaf lettering right there. The near shore current was strong on Saturday and moved the swimmer southward, according to a news release from the town. Lifeguards pulled a swimmer from the water moments later near 2nd Street. So he perished. So he died. Um, but so you have red, no swimming flags. And this happens like all the time. This ha- happens all the time. Um along the coast where you will have, so the the red no swimming flags mean no swimming. 
you can't, it's not safe to even go out, you know, 10, 15 feet. There's rip currents and everything else. Um, my, you know, my, my parents were down in, uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama and, and talk about this phenomena too, of people just ignoring the red, no swimming flags and still going out. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so you do that. You, you ignore the red, no swimming flags, and you're obviously putting your own life at risk. And now you are putting the lives of the responders at risk. Um, yeah, you know, the, the lifeguards, the fire department, um, county emergency services, all of them you're bringing into this. You're putting them at risk of trying to rescue you. And you know you shouldn't be out there, right? You know you shouldn't be out there. And I did a little, you know, a little bit of an internet search on this, and it, it just it this is so common, so common. Um, whether it be along, you know, the the southern shore or the east coast um, of people doing this, the the you know high winds. Um, crazy currents but you know the flag systems when they're out there and it's the the red the no swimming is overtly identified and people just ignore that well i'm just going to go out a little bit or they're like the hell with it i know what i'm going to do um and i'm experienced and yeah maybe for someone that doesn't have the experience level i do or whatever and these people also you know tourists who come down and you're, you know, from a northern state and this stuff is all new to you. So it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm only going to go out so far. And I've read a number of those too. You know, people from cold weather states go down and they just ignore these things and get out there. And suddenly someone gets pulled out in a rip current, one or two people, and they, they perish. And that's hard to find the body too in some of these cases or bodies. So you have the time and eventually you have to either call and you say you're not going to search anymore but you're occupying all of that plus the the grief that goes on with the family and and this really hits hard with the searchers the people trying to rescue the fatigue the cumulative stress that's put on them um you know I'm a critical instant stress debriefer and just the longevity of these types of, of rescues, like the Thai rescue. Thankfully, I mean, that is having a positive outcome. So that's, you know, keeping people energized. It's a rescue. It's not a recovery. But in these other cases, you know, where someone gets this, this Charlotte observer, July 7th, the 62 year old guy, poop off, gets swept out to sea. Um, that just, and, you know, they're able to recover him, but oh my, my goodness, that just is so, so much of a horrible impact on the the people involved in the rescue. And again, it's one of those things where everyone will say, well, why did this happen? Like the guy went in there where the red no swing flags. So what was he thinking? Well, he wasn't. Or, you know, it, it's, it's so, it's so self-centered um, when people do these. In all three of these cases, the, these are people who are thinking about themselves who are ignoring, um, you know, post-it warnings and just are not thinking beyond the moment of what are the consequences for myself and then what are the consequences for the people who are going to come out to attempt to rescue me. And, then, you know, we really have, you know, the, the like in, for Thai, you know, the, the outpouring of resources and in Thailand coming into Thailand. Um, what was it? Elon Musk was even built like a little mini sub that might be used to rescue some of the, of the kids. Um, but everybody, you know, opening up their, it's like small group theory. Actually, it's like where you get the best of the best from all, all over the world. And, and they just come in because, um, they're going to contribute their talents to try to do this this rescue, and it's it's really a selfless act, uh, and it it brings it represents the best of humanity. But you shouldn't have these things activated because of stupidity, 
and and it's not ignorance. You're not ignorant. You're not ignorant doing any of these things because you're informed. You're not ignorant, but it's stupidity, and it is decision making, um, and you know, I don't even think it's risk taking, risk and re- reward. I don't even see see that. Um, I just it is so selfish to do things like this. So that's, I, I guess I'm on this, this kick right now where I'm angry with the way these things are being portrayed. Um, these, the, these types of things that, well, you know, someone just made a bad choice and now we got to focus on what's going on in the outcome. Okay. I, I guess right there I get that. You know, with the with Thailand, you know, you don't want to get the kids freaked out and all of that and and you want to stay positive in that situation. But, you know, ultimately there needs to be consequences. Um or this is this will happen again. And then maybe you could have a situation where unfortunately, you know, people do end up um perishing because, you know, it cave fills up with water and they can't get out um, or rescue or something happens or whatever. And how many times again on the coast and these, these red flag warnings and just, I mean, you do an internet search, people drowning off, you know, the coastal areas in the United States. And I've been listening to uh, David Polites. Um, he has a number of books published, 411, Missing Whatever talks about uh, people going into national parks and never coming out or else they're found weeks, possibly months later. Um, now he's more into conspiracy theory um, and just pointing out some of the, the very strange occurrences, happenings, inconsistencies and these things. But also in his work, it reveals where, you know, Again, people are getting themselves into situations sometimes, you know, like a hiker going off without adequate supplies and and then getting lost. And then you have, you know, the whole search team that has to convene and go out and go through dangerous terrain and all of those types of things. Well, again, I mean, if you're going to take on that risk, if you're going to be hiking through Yosemite or, you know, whatever, you, you have to know what you're doing. And that's one of these things where, where Pilates notes um, that no, none of the missing people had, to his knowledge, because I guess it would be registered, but had, it's about 300 bucks. This basically like a life alert, that, but it goes to satellites. And you activate it when you're lost or hurt or, or whatever and need help. And then that activates where, you know, they can triangulate your position quickly and get responders to you. I'm sure there's a big cost associated to that that you're probably paying for your own rescue, but I mean, you're preserving your life. And he said, that's, you know, that's a good thing for just every one that kind of is an explorer and even veteran, very, you know, versed um, hikers to have that type of stuff because you never know what can happen. But um, again, these things, that's just another extension as I was going through his stuff of the frustration I was feeling of people just not um, acknowledging, you know, that, well, here's the standard. If you're going off into whatever, that you, the basic things that you need to have and also the amount of water that you need to have that you need to let somebody know ahead of time where you're going and some of these types of things. And, you know, I guess maybe I'm, I'm coming off like too stern on some of this. I mean, and there are things where people just end up getting lost. I mean, and it even happens to rescuers, and then they just know to stop um, moving. Um, but because, you know, that's that's something you do, right? It's something that we know um, if you are hiking and, and you get lost, you stop. Um, if you're educated, like, you stop because it's easier for the rescuers to find you. Um, now lost person behavior and people panic, they'll, they'll look and they'll try to get to the highest point to try to see what's out there and see if they can recognize something that they can go to a road or something like that. But, um, 
I just want to close this out again with saying, don't make, don't make decisions. Okay. Whether it be, you know, it's a windy day. I'm going to burn my leaves or something like that. And I'll be fine. I've got the hose out here and you end up burning down half the neighborhood and stuff like that. And just don't make decisions when you are informed that these decisions could have safety consequences, which will impact others and bring them into the mix. And then you, you, you just think beyond of what, what's going to happen to them or what could happen to them. Um, so these intentional bad decisions after you've been informed. Again, anything can happen to any of us. I mean, think of the number of car accidents that people get into, you know, a slippery surf- surface that, you know, is on a on a road or, you know, the way that the sun hits and someone, you know, is, is temporarily um, blinded by the, the sun or something like that. Deer runs out, whatever, you know, things like that. And just things happen. Okay. Um, but when you intentionally are informed and you make a decision that puts your life at risk, the risk of others that you're responsible for, and, you know, we're not, and we're talking not like an urgent situation, like, you know, like an active shooter, you have to make a decision in that moment, like to preserve yourself and maybe the people with you. We're talking about things like, you know, the, the Thai cave, they didn't have to go in the cave. I mean, they didn't have to go. The person scaling the Statue of Liberty didn't have to do that. The, the, I mean, these are all things like you just have a choice to walk away and there'd be no consequence. <laughs> the person, the 62-year-old guy who sees the two red flags of no swim, and just don't swim then, dude. Like, don't go in that day. So... Frustrate it, frustrate it, frustrate it, and also with the media response to this, that these things are getting, they aren't getting the hard hammer that I would put down on them. It frankly pisses me off that these things are getting probably more just ignored or, or accolades. It's just something that happens versus a real deep scrutiny at some level of saying, no, we've brought a lot of people now into the mix not including the the families of all of these people, but but other people into the mix who are going to do their jobs and try to save people, um, but the the risk that we are now putting onto them just gets overlooked. So, hey everybody, enjoy your summer and the safety doc. Um, when I go out biking, I always bring a extra charger for my phone in case I need to do that. Let I give my route out. So um, my wife or someone else would know the route that I'm on, have my safety, my um, kit packed. So with bandages and all of that, have my identification um, located in one of the bags on the, the bike in case, you know, I'm knocked unconscious or something like that. So, you know, just all of those those types of things. Taking plenty of water, making sure I'm prepared for the ride, recognizing the limitations of my body, like if, um, you know, and, and very aware, checking the weather, checking the, just those types of things. Because, again, i be responsible for myself, but then also um, don't want to do something and make a poor decision after I've been informed um, and that would put other people at risk. So safety doc signing out. Dun, 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 dun. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response.
You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.